Good to see everybody. How are you going well? Happy to be in the house of the Lord? There we go. I'm hearing heavy over this side, none over this side. How are you going? All right, two of you are pretty keen. Well, can you open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4, please? It's been our joy to be going line by line through this great epistle from the the prison cell, not really a cell, a, a house in which Paul was allowed to rent as he's chained up to a, to a Roman official and a guard as he's awaiting his trial before Nero. And from that prison cell, from that house arrest, we call it, he wrote many of the, uh, a handful of the, the, the New Testament letters. And today we uh, continue our journey through Ephesus, one of those letters that he wrote. I'm going to I'm going to just, uh, just frame us up for, for a little bit. The, at this point of the epistle, uh, uh, Paul moves from largely what has been doctrine to mostly from now on, chapter 4 onwards, what is going to be our duty. He, he's gone from, from what we will call imperative, things that are true, uh, are true done for us by the finished work of God, to what is called the imperative, what, what has to be done by us. He's, he's going from what is done by God to what is needed to be done for God. That's sort of the, the shift at this point from chapter 4 onwards. As Now, I don't like saying he's been very theological in chapters 1 to 3, and he's going to get very practical from chapters 4 to 6. I don't like framing it that way at all, because there is, in fact, nothing, no thing more practical to you as a Christian in life than knowing the deep doctrine of the gospel, who you are in Christ, what he did for you on the cross, what that means for you in your Christian life. So, so do not hear me saying chapter one was for the nerds, was for the bookworms, the people without a life, you people who get to know stuff and not do anything, and then you guys over here who are workers and doers and servers, well, you get to ignore chapter one to three and four to six is your zone. That's not at all the dynamic. Theology is practical, and yet in chapter 4 onwards, Paul mainly starts moving to application. If everything is true in, that he has spoken about in chapters 1 through 3, which it is, if that is all true about us, the, the church of the living God, then there are certain necessary implications which must be taken place, must be acted out and being seen in our lives in order for us to to rightly respond or rightly glorify God. Or if I can frame it in Ephesians 4 language, if the calling is true, the, the calling that God has put on us into God's eternal purposes in Christ, which is to create a new humanity, not Jew or Gentile, but together the church, if the, if the eternal purposes in God, which he has called us to, which is about creating his temple, creating his bride, creating his people, the church, if that is all true and we've been called into that, if that's our calling, forgiven, justified, adopted sinners, if that's our calling, there is a walk that must be taking place that is a right response to that calling. And that's, that's what he says here in Ephesians 4. Let me read verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 4. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you who are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And so we'll begin next week's passage. But may God be gracious in our midst to bless to us his own inerrant, infallible, powerful word this evening. Very good. What we're going to see is that at this point, as Paul is calling them to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling, he's going to tonight speak about our unity. What a, what a local church, what Christians relating to each other need to, need to behave with a kind of a unity between one another that is worthy of the gospel. Next week, from verse 7 through to uh, verse 16, we're going to see the mission that we are on. That, uh, uh, that, that the church is given in light of the call. And then from verse 17 to 24, it's going to be the holiness. So there's, there's these three categories. The church must seek and strive to do rightly so that they are responding properly to the gospel. That is our unity that is manifested, our mission that is engaged on, and holiness that is, that is sought after. Tonight, in verse 1 to 6, we are doing this section on the unity in our Midst. I want to make a, a clarification because as we read verse 1 there, a lot of us who, were, who, were, who just read, who just heard preach, who just fell in love with the way that Paul expounded the gospel in Ephesians 2 where he's saying that you are saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is not of your own doing. No one can boast. And he just drove that home in so many ways. It's, it's not your doing because he elected you before you were born anyway. It's not your doing because you were dead in sin and he made you alive. It's not your doing because he saved you by his own grace through Christ. It's by faith you receive that, not doing. So he's done everything he can to basically say it is impossible to be worthy of the grace of God. It is impossible to be worthy of the gospel. You can't earn it. And, and then in chapter 4, he opens up by saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How are we to live worthy of something that you can literally never be worthy of? Or the deeper question, how can Paul not be contradicting himself if he says you can't earn it? You can't be worthy of it, but you're in sin if you don't become worthy of it. How do we, how do we untie this Gordian knot? And, and the reality is that, that in the, the, the way that he's speaking here, being worthy or walking in a way that is worthy is not the idea of earning the salvation. He is not saying that you ought to walk in such a way so as to earn your calling, he is saying, walk in such a way that shows off the worth of your calling. Walk in such a way that the equation makes sense. If I was to get myself an R.C. Sproul-styled uh, 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 chalkboard this afternoon, and I'd be to write a, in big letters in front of everybody, in big numbers, 20 equals 15. How many of us would know that that is an untrue equation? Mans, anybody in town? Some of you are educators, and I pray that you know that. Uh, if, if, if I came to you and said 20 equals 15, now, now you have to do something to make this equation true. What, what do you have to do? You're going to go over to this side, the 20 equals 15, and, and what do you have to do? You write a plus. Come on. Yeah, there we go. We're, we're in it together tonight. Yes, you have, to, you have to do a plus 
five on this side of the equation to make it true. Now, now that is really, in essence, in a spiritual, walking, lifestyle manner of way that Paul is speaking to us. He's saying, here's, here's this side of the gospel. God elected you to be holy. God predestined you to perfection. God adopted you to be his child. God, God saved you. He brought you up out of sin and death. He gave you his spirit. He empowered you with an immeasurable strength and power. He gave all of that to you. Now, make the equation make sense. Because on this side of the equation, so often we then go and look at the church, and it's not just five points short. It's in the negatives. We, we will have this glorious doctrine that we claim, and yet on the, on the other side of the equals side, it is, it is simply not equal. It is imbalanced. It is not true as you look at the church. And, and so this is the call of Paul. Live in such a way as to equalize, not, not to be earning the salvation. You can never be worthy of it. But live in such a way that shows accurately the worth of it. Display the reality that you claim, in other words, is what Paul is saying. As we look at the worthy, sorry, the, the unity that we ought to have in the church, we're going to see that, first of all, he talks about things that we should put effort into doing about our character, our treatment, our behavior. And then he's going to go to the Trinity and the work of our triune God in salvation to show that there is a deep theological reality that is the grounds for our unity. We'll get there in a moment. But first, look at verse 2. As he's in, uh, in, uh, uh, calling on them to live with this oneness in our midst. And of course, some of the background here is, is the Jew-Gentile uh, 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 political, racial, uh, ethnic sort of tensions that were going on at the background. We, we don't hear anywhere that it was exploding in Ephesus, although the Jews did attack Paul, he says. So, so, so there's this background theme that he's been addressing the last couple of chapters about God reconciling in one man, Jew and Gentile, into the church. There's, there's that, but we can extend that, of course. There would have been slaves and slave owners at that time in, in history, there would have been uh, 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 men and women who had uh, different standings in, in society. There would have been the poor and the rich, the employer and the employed, the disenfranchised and the, and the wealthy. There's all these reasons why people would not be unified together. And here's Paul calling them to make an effort into unity. And, and again, even before we get there, Unity has sort of been a buzzword in a lot of churches for, for decades, right? It's the, it, it was sort of the grounds on which the uniting church in Australia in the 70s, some Methodists, uh, uh, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, they sort of joined arms and went, let's sort of erase the distinctions of theology that we have so that we can be one. And that's how a lot of people sort of think over the, over the last decades. They, they make the big peace, love, unity, tolerance, no distinction sort of, sort of battle cries. And we want to be unified. The, the big sort of theme that, and what they're assuming and what they're saying without saying, and sometimes they are saying it by explicitly saying it is, let's be one, so ignore theology. Let's not define things too tightly, lest we disagree. So let's just ignore theology, smooth over those differences, and, and pretend to be one, and eventually we will be one. And how's, how's that gone? Uniting church? What flags are they waving these days? But here's, here's the point, without flinging, flinging mud, here's, here's the point, is that the way that Paul has just defined, or the way that Paul just commanded our obedience and our walk 
The very way he did that undermines any idea of unity that is not theologically defined. In other words, in verse 1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Some people want to read that as if it just says, Live a walk that is worthy. Go on, do it. Be unified and the like. But what he says is, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So to even have that unity, to even be walking in the manner that is worthy, you need to be able to define. You need to be able to study. You need to be able to theologically, exegetically, hermeneutically understand what is the calling. It's, it's impossible to have unity or any kind of walking that is worthy of our calling unless we have first done the hard work of defining theologically what that calling is. You cannot gain unity by ignoring theology. Rather, unity comes from correct theology. Now, now, now we're into the, into the words itself of, of verse 2. And verse 2 says, speaking of what we should make an effort towards, he has two couplets. One is humility and gentleness, and the other is patient and bearing with one another in love. We'll start with, uh, with the humble meekness, or, or, or the ESV has gentleness, humility and gentleness, but the, the same Greek word comes out as meekness in other translations. Uh, humble and gentle, or humble and meek. Now, now humble means really a, a lowliness of mind. And it's important we say of mind in the kind of critical theory age that we live in, thanks to Mr. Marx and all of his modern day associates, is is that when we say lowly of mind in, in humility, what we can sometimes assume is that if you're not low in, 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 in prominence, you, you can't truly be humble. If you're not low in wealth, you can't truly be humble. You have to be poor to be humble. You have to be ungifted to be humble. You have to be unprominent in the church to truly be humble. You have to be, have to be unseen at church to, not be, uh, to be truly humble, and that's not the case. You can be rich and humble. You can be prominent and humble. You can be a, a gifted, seen, noticed person and be humble. You can be, you can be important and be humble, just as you can be poor and proud. You can be not very involved in the upfront things at church and still be awfully proud about service. You can be, you can be unnoticed and fairly ungifted and still be immensely proud. The idea here is not, is not loneliness of, of riches or prominence or gifts, but loneliness of mind. In other words, you consider your calling, whatever it be, whatever gifting you have, whatever abilities, opportunities you have, humility of mind, this lowliness of mind considers that your calling, the reason that you've given all of these things is so that you can serve the other people in the church, the other brothers and sisters in the family, the other bricks in the temple, the other organs in the body. Pick whatever analogy you prefer. When you think that way, that my gifting, my calling, my opportunities, my prominence, whatever I have, it is all for the upbuilding of others, then you have loneliness of mind. Then you have humility, which puts other people in front of you. And I think this way, and I've spoken about it this way, because Paul uses this very word that he commands of the Ephesians. He used it of his, of his own self, describing his own ministry among the Ephesians. In Acts chapter 20, Paul ducked back into Ephesus and met with the elders 
and he speaks to them about the life that he lived with them for three years. And he says, in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, you know how amongst you, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How? I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So here's Paul saying, as the most prominent figurehead person of the entire Ephesian church who planted it, who preached it into existence, who suffered for it, who led it, as that figurehead guy, he's still able to say, I was humble among you. Because I wasn't doing anything that was self-seeking. I was speaking what was profitable for you. You needed to hear it, so I preached it. You needed to be pastored, so I pastored. He was, he was poor, that's true, Yet he was, and, and he was humble. He was prominent, though, and he was humble. He was very, very gifted, and yet he was still humble. So, so I think what Paul is really, really gauging as the sign of humility for a Christian in the local church is how much you're positioning your life in such a way that God can use you for the building of the local church. That's the sign of humility. That's the, that's the key marker. How much is your life geared and, 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 and positioned in such a way that God can use you in the growing of his church? Because as we've said every week through this epistle, as we're just echoing Paul, is that it is in the church unlike any other institution. No parachurch organization, no parachurch ministry, no other job, institution, political party, or anything has the chosen place of God in redemptive history as the church. Where Jew and Gentile are unified under Jesus Christ, this is now, Ephesians 3 verse 21 told us, that it is in the church and in Christ that God receives his glory now and in every generation forever and ever. There will never be a time after the resurrection of Jesus, there will never be a time where the local church is not the body of Christ on earth and the focus, the, the apex of all of God's activity in the world. You, we, we need to think very highly of the local church like Paul did. So in Acts 20, a few verses later in verse 24, he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he did so until he was thrown in prison for doing just that. This is Paul's example, that he says, imitate me, serve the local church. That is, is the great and greatest sign of humility but he, he does, he does uh, uh, buffet it somewhat. He does add to that humility the idea of gentleness or, or meekness. Now, the most common sort of way of describing meekness in theological journals or commentaries or whatever is, is to basically say this, that meekness is not weakness. A rhyme does not mean equality. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness is the inability to be strong. Weakness is the inability to be actually violent. Now, if you're unable to be violent, if you're unable to be strong, it is not a virtue when you are not violent. You're not self-controlling anything. You're, you're, 
You're just incapable. Incapable? There you go. You're you're just disabled. You can't do it. It's not a virtue that you're not doing it. Uh, And so what what meekness is not is, it's not weakness. It's immense strength under immense control. That's the idea of meekness, a a gentleness. It's the meekness is, is a burly father holding his newborn daughter, knowing that at this moment, anybody tried to harm her, I would kill them. And yet as he holds her, she doesn't have a single bruise on her. That's the meekness. Immense strength, capable of of destructive violence or or immense acts of protection. And yet, and yet, immensely controlled, mastered, self-disciplined, so as to be protective of those things that need it. This is what meekness meekness is. I know I say the word meek or lowly and everybody's mind goes goes to Jesus. Gentle and lowly. Meek and mild. Blah, blah, blah. As if, as if, and, and what usually will people think, and usually define as meek and lowly, is, is a tone of speech. As if meek and lowly was a tone. It's idiotic. Meek and lowly and, and humble is not a tone. It's a lifestyle. If, if you can watch, let me just, I'm swinging, swinging from the hip here, shooting from the hip. If you can watch The Chosen and not be repulsed by the complete effeminacy of the man who portrays the God-man in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, sent for our salvation, defined as, as knowledgeable to us only by the word of God. If somebody can take that, turn it into a, into, a, into a TV show, and portray him in such soft-spoken, almost crying, all the time, effeminate language. If you can watch The Chosen, not be repulsed in the first few seconds of that portrayal of Jesus, you need to read your Bible more. It is offensive to see that kind of softly spoken, effeminate, unassertive, uh, uh, undomineering. Uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, domineering can be bad, but, but in the sense that he cannot say straightly, he does not, does not control, does not lead, does not speak sharp and harsh truths. This, this is just unmasculine. Meek is not a tone. It is a lifestyle. You know what, you know what constituted the meekness of Jesus? That at any time in his earthly ministry, he could have called 12 legions of angels to come and turn his enemies into a mist of red dust. That's what his meekness was, that he didn't. He had severe, infinite strength and never utilized it for judgment. But he sought to seek and save the lost. He came out of love, out of humility, to benefit the elect in order to bring salvation out of love. That was his lifestyle of meekness, not a, not a softness of speech and a, and a lisp and a, and a near tearing up every time he engages a woman in an emotional conversation. That's not meekness. Meekness is what Paul shows us. The motherly and fatherly tone of his ministry as a preacher. His caring and protective ministry as a shepherd in the local church. A a daring and caring father over a congregation who is preaching a people into new life. That's that's what is meant by meekness and gentleness. That that you're not unnecessarily violent or hurtful or or even careless with how you speak. This idea of gentleness is that if I don't need to speak harshly, this conversation can be had in a nice conversational manner. If I don't need to come in all guns blazing, then I won't. If if I don't need to to do something that would unnecessarily offend, the Christian route, the Christian path, is to do all that you can to not offend, as Romans 12 tells us, to live at peace with all as much as it depends on you. 
So meekness does not mean weak. Meekness does not mean, mean a, a gentleness and a softness. It means strength under control for the benefit of those around you in the local church, primarily, and all of our neighbors secondarily. <clears throat> so the second is here, what I'll just couple together as patient forbearance. Uh, be patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, as verse 2 here says. And, and this is so necessary for the church. By patience, probably, this is, this is speaking about a, a calmness in aggravating circumstances. And by forbearance, it is, it is a commitment. It is first a commitment. Okay, the, the forbearance that Christians show each other cannot be a reaction. And you cannot let, you know, you just cross your fingers and hope it's the first thing that sprouts up. It will not be. Forbearance needs to firstly be a commitment. I'm here among a people who, as far as Ephesians tells me, were all dirty, rotten, dead sinners before their conversion, and they've made a little bit of progress, <laughs> who still have an infinite reach of sanctification before them, and who still have all of the, 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 the works of the flesh working against them. I am committing, in my belonging to this temple, this local church, this, this, this bride of Christ right here on earth, I am committing to put up with people. Because sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's genuine sin. They've gone out of their way to hurt you, malign you, uh, speak evil against you, or, or, or do something like that. Sometimes it's sin. And wouldn't it just be easier if the only things that people did against us were sin? Like it was all just easily definable against the Ten Commandments. But it's not that way. Often it's just their proclivities, their, their styles, their shirts that they wear, the pants that that guy puts on, the, the, her hair color, his music taste, the way he breathes sitting next to me in the pew, his, the mouth breathers, okay? There's, this is what the imprecatory psalms were written for. This, that we just get annoyed at each other, and it's not even technically sin that they're doing. It's, it's just grinding on me. It's just like a few grains of sand in the pistons of an engine, and as it runs and moves, and the, and the ministry of the church is pumping on, it grinds, and it scratches, and it... And it scrapes. I mean, it's not a flex to be annoyed at people in church. It's not a flex. It's not impressive. It's, it's a sign of immaturity. Paul is saying here, bear with one another. You, you're surprised that you came in here and people are offending you? They misunderstood your shyness for, for meanness and they didn't invite you to something or they didn't engage you in conversation? Yeah, get over it and reconcile. You, they, they spoke something behind your back that, I mean, they were trying to malign you, but that wasn't very fair on you. Okay, Deal with it by speaking to them. Let's, let's work these things out. Or, or people, um, you know, they, they don't approach you. They don't invite you to things. They don't treat you. There's, there's misunderstood expectations of a relationship. You thought you were pals. He thought you were just a, a fellow churchgoer. He hardly remembers your name. I mean, maybe things like this. Or, or somebody tells a joke or makes, a, makes an offhanded comment and don't realize the situation you're in. And that just cuts to the core and you're so hurt and offended. None of those things are necessarily horrible sins. It's just what happens when human beings live in community. Now, what's the solution? It's either isolation, where you don't have to deal with people, or forbearance and patience, as Paul here commands. Be patient, forbear by a commitment to put up with one another as God so graciously puts up with us. Pro us. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger. Good sense. We, we usually think the more 
theological, the more wise you are, the more infuriated you are with people in the world and the devil. And Well, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Is that your glory? Do you delight in another jewel on the crown, another glorification, another, another shining brilliance of God's patience when you overlook somebody's offense towards you because you can, you're patient, you're forbearing, you've committed more highly to the unity of the local church than to everybody knowing every problem that you have with other sinners. Pastors will fail you, people will offend you, people will sin against you, but good sense makes one slow to anger. In the words of Paul, let's read it again. Bear with one another in love. That is the command. That's what Paul says, and as we sort of just, just remind ourselves, what's he saying in, this, in the broader sense of this text? It's this, that as the world, that as unbelievers who come in our midst, that as people from, from, from other places look on into the church or come in among us and see the church as they see our behavior and our, and our love and, 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 and people getting along with people that are just not similar to them. And as, and as people who are, who are in some ways quite ambitious to do good and in other ways so willing to lay down their own preferences and as people are serving each other and don't you know there's better things to do on a Sunday night than serve other people food in the kitchen? I mean, I mean come on, there's, there's cheap drinks at the pub. There's at least a couple of good TV shows on. Netflix has, has brought something out. Don't you have a busy week Monday to Friday? Don't you need Sunday for you? And yeah, and, and here we are. Here we are seeking one another's good when people see that. It starts to make sense of all of chapter 1 through 3. They go, God is in this place. He has made for himself a new people. He's washed them by the blood of his son. He's adopted them into his family. This all makes sense. Those are the things in our control. Then he goes in verse 4 through 6. He speaks of the nature of God himself. I'm going I'm to dial out a few applications here or theological implications. He's, he's speaking of the nature of God himself and on the basis of his finished work in the gospel that there is a deeper unity than any, any of us can actually be responsible for. And so in verse 4 through 6, he speaks of the fact, look for the Trinitarian language. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when we, we preached all about and read all about the Trinitarian work of God in our salvation, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the, the Father, the Lord, and that the Spirit are engaged in our salvation together? We'll see if you can see the language here again. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord... One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And of course, the all there being the, the children, the, the Christians, not, not everybody and every single thing as, as yet. And, and so we have Paul speaking here of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which as we remind ourselves, I know we've gone back to the dense stuff, but the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. Got your attention again? Ontological trinity is that the very being, the ontology, the nature of God is that he is one in substance and essence. Yahweh is one God, one substance, one essence, one nature, and yet subsistence. His, his underlying reality of persons is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, eternally existent in three equal persons in the Trinity. This is why 
John can write and say, God is love. Not merely is love something God chooses to do, it's something that he has been existing in and defining for all of eternity. The community of love that God is, is not something that comes after creation once he makes man and woman to love. Rather, the community of love that the, the Trinity exists in is that eternal community that has always existed. Don't you realize when Paul starts speaking of our unity, despite our diversity or distinctions, the thing that he is really drawing on ultimately is the very nature of God himself. That there is the most ancient, the most eternal community of perfect love and unity that has ever existed. He starts there. But he does go a bit deeper in the sense that he starts speaking about the work, the, the, the economical trinity, the, the, the things that God has done in his triune being, the, the things that he has done in history to bring about our salvation as a finished work. And in that sense, he talks about one body and spirit, one Lord and one hope, faith, and baptism, and one Father, who is the, who is the, the God and Father of us all. So, so let's start looking into, into here as to why he, he couples these different ideas together. First of all, he speaks of the spirit, one body and one spirit. Well, this is simple. This has been one of the themes of Ephesians all the way through, that, the, that there is... Only one body of which Jesus is the head, Ephesians 1, verse 23. There's now one new man which has been reconciled back to God, Ephesians 2, verse 16. There is one household of God, Ephesians 2, 19. There is now one same body that Jew and Gentile Christians are members of, Ephesians 3, verse 6. There is only one body... The Christian church, Jew and Gentile, every race in between, there is only one body, the Christian church, that the Spirit fills and makes a temple out of in his indwelling. The church, the local church of believers in Christ. And so it makes a lot of sense that he, that he pairs these two together in his first Trinitarian formula. There's one body and one Spirit. One body filled by the Spirit. Only one people unified by the Spirit. That is the grounds of our unity. We are one body. We are worked upon by the one Holy Spirit. And then he moves to the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, who in the New Testament is frequently called our Lord, our, our Master. He refers to him here when he says, One hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, now here is... It's rather a, a simple, logical flow of the idea. There is, there is only one hope to which all Christians are called. It's not like a, like a train line with multiple stops into eternity, and the, 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 the Baptists get off here to that destiny, and the Presbyterians get their own boring destiny, and the Methodists go off to some weird, weird destiny, and the Reformed Baptists get seat right at the foot of the throne, and we get the resurrected world right. It's not like that. It's that we're all Christians, despite our theological differences, what is common is that we all have the one hope. The one hope. And what is that one hope that Paul tells us in Titus 2 verse 13? The, the one hope, the one blessed hope that we all have, he says, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
don't care what denomination you're in, particularly the one thing that is all of our hope is the bodily future return of Jesus, whereby he resurrects us and takes us to our full inheritance. No denomination gets to deny that. One hope. But of course, we are unified to that one hope, that one, that one outcome, that one predestined end. We're unified around that because, well, there's only one Lord that achieves such a hope for us. There's only one Lord, one, one God-man who came to the world, died for our sins, rose again on the third day, and unified us back to God. There's only one God-man who enables us to partake with the saints in the inheritance of light. There's, there's only one Jesus, one Savior, one Messiah, one Christ, one Lord, who has been the Savior of all who believe in him. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense for Paul to say, there's only one hope, one destination, but we only get there because of the work of one Lord. And, and how is it that you came to partake in that Lord? How is it that you came to receive the benefits of that Lord and receive the hope that that Lord gives and is by faith. There's only one kind of faith that saves. It's, it's just the one saving faith. We, we all have it. Prezies, Baptists, Reformed, Arminian, Complementarians, Egalitarians. Yeah, we all, if we have faith, that was, that was a joke at them. The, they're just in. The, 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 the faith is pure. It's, it's the faith that really matters. You're not getting to the, to the destination through the Lord because if any of your denominational, secondary, other theological ties, it is who your faith is connected to. That is Jesus, the one Lord. And of course, you can then ask in, in simple New Testament imagery and language, what is the one thing we all do to symbolize that hope, that faith in that one Lord? Well, it's baptism. It's, it's that one baptism. We all have entered through the same sacrament in order to show our faith in the one Lord who gives us that one hope. And so this next phrase makes so much sense. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. When it comes down to it, when you boil down the reality of Christianity, these labels don't, def don't, don't define us and don't, don't, don't divide us. I think one of the things that Paul is getting at, and one of the applications we need to take from this, is to, not to, to, to let labels alone define things. Don't think of things according to labels only. Think of things according to realities. Like, like, okay, they're a Presbyterian or, or they're a Methodist or a Congregationalist or a Pentecostal and, and maybe as a Reformed Baptist, that's very different from me. But, but I don't need to let that actually worry me whatsoever. I don't need to call that disunity because I, I run them through this test. Who's your hope? Who's your Lord? In whom is your faith and into whom were you baptized? Who do you have a spiritual mystical union with? If your answer is always Jesus to all of those, then we're brothers, we're unified. And these labels don't need to worry us. They, they become helpful. But on the other hand, of course, in the age of heretics and false teachers and false Christians, as Paul was writing, even to our day today, don't simply embrace somebody or a movement or a church because they call themselves Christian. Think of things not in terms of labels, but in terms of realities. When somebody says they're a Christian, they're, they're the latter saint Christian. No, that's called a Mormon. You're a heretic. Stop trying to sneak in. When, when people try and call themselves or their movements or the, their persons Christians, we should be more discerning than simply to say, great, we have a unity. No, let's define things by realities. Where is your faith? What is your hope? 
who is your Lord? Into whom were you baptized? Into whom do you have spiritual union and therefore justification, adoption, and glorification? Is it Jesus? If not, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a five-point card-carrying Calvinistic Reformed Baptist Spurgeonic imputationist like me. If your faith and your hope is in something else, we have zero, zero unity. Define things by reality, not merely labels. And of course, lastly, it makes a lot of sense here that, that he affirms both, both monotheism and the adoption of all of us into the family of God in the next phrase that he says, and one God and Father of all. Usually in the New Testament, sometimes Jesus referred to just outright as God. Other times he's called L-O-R-D in capitals Yahweh. Like, like Jesus is absolutely God. However, sometimes in the New Testament, most of the time, I should say, when the language is of God and nearby the language is of Lord, usually the Lord is referring to Jesus and God is referring to the Father. So we even saw this in Ephesians 1 when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a usual Pauline way that he distinguishes the persons. And, and so here Paul is saying we have one God and Father. So, so he is... Uh, 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 promoting and absolutely defining here a monotheism, a single God, not, not polytheism, single God. However, that one God, the chief head within the Godhead, the, 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 at the hierarchy in terms of their workings is the Father. Now, here's where it gets down to our unity. A king may have a son that goes off to join the army. A king may have a son that works in politics. A king may have a son that goes off and flees from the family to Australia. A, a king may have a son that, that works as a plumber or as a carpenter. The, a king may have a son of all kinds that marries a foreigner and goes into, a, into another family. But, but none of those things ultimately matter when, when the will is being read or, or when the king is seeking to, to, to anoint an upcoming successor. The only thing that matters at that point is, is the king your father? And in the church, Paul is saying that, yeah, you might be able to say, you come from a big, long, circumcised line of Jews. Good job. You may come from a big, long, whoring line of prostitutes in the temple of Diana in Ephesus. You may come from a nice little middle-class, white picket fence Ephesian household. Great. Who is your father? That's the one thing that really defines you in this moment. Not, not your earthly father, not your background, not your religious experience. Who has adopted you? Is it the father of all? And in that sense, there's not a single Christian who has faith in Jesus who can't say amen, yes, to that. God is my father. And you know what? The most impressive pastor, the most low-lying new member, even struggling with terrible sins, there's no difference or distinction or category or hierarchy in Christ between those people. The most zealous evangelist, the most cowardly, fearful Christian, by faith in Christ, we've all been adopted into the one family, and this, therefore, is the unshakable, immutable, unchangeable, eternal grounds of our unity. John Stott, a theologian, he's English, he's passed away now, he was English, he wrote about this, and he said, there's no English in heaven, I guess that's how my, my mind works, he was English, now he's in heaven. Uh, uh, he wrote about this, and he said, Paul is so tied, our unity, to God's unity, that you can no sooner split the true church than you can split the Godhead. 
If you can't make a, a tear in the fabric of the spiritual union of the temple of God that is called the church, you can no sooner do that than you can split father from son from spirit. What a, what a thought. What an amazingly overwhelming reality that Paul has laid out in front of us. In terms of invisible, objective, spiritual reality, that is absolutely true. But go and read verse 3 now as our last application before we close. Go and read verse 3. Verse 3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you get verses 4 to 6, that our unity is so immense, so real, so spiritually grounded, so objective, beyond us. We, we didn't achieve it. God did it. If it's so unilaterally done by God, then in what sense can Paul come to us and say, well, you make sure that you maintain it? If we didn't build it, we can't maintain it. If it's done by God, then it's not actually within our ability to change. How is he asking? How is he commanding that you're in sin unless you maintain that which is indestructible anyway? Well, of course, I don't think that's exactly what Paul is saying. On, on the one hand, on verses 4 to 6, as we said, his speech has been about something objective, above you and beneath you, absolute, but invisible, universal, global. You have this kind of unity with your best friend in church who believes in Christ and, and, the, and the, the ex-Buddhist priest over in Burma that you've never met, the same equality and unity between both of those relationships, if there's faith in Christ. What he's speaking about in verse 3 is then the local body of Christians, the external manifestation, the visible church. All of this of verses 4 through 6 is the grounds of our real and true, objective, invisible spiritual unity. And verse 3 is a plead, a, a command that they would chase to be external, to be visible, to be local. What is a reality in the universal, global, spiritual church of Jesus Christ? That if all of this is true, I think the, here are our, here are our closing, closing applications. First of all, your first step towards being eager, not, not passive, not, not seeing how it goes, eager, chase this, pursue this in the local church. Our, our first step towards chasing after a manifestation of what is true in the spiritual realm is first of all to recognize. And this is what Paul does so often for us, and I, I feel I'm, like I'm in good company saying this. It's not so much something to do, it's, it's something to believe. Settle it in your heart. Spend some time just thinking about what we've read here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Recognize that no matter how much you despise that person, don't like their secondary theology, don't like what they've done to you in the past, don't like their background, however much you might feel different even, maybe, maybe outcast, maybe a one-of-a-kind in this church, I don't know. Whatever you feel, your responsibility to God in the local church is to first of all recognize, sit down and think hard, Establish your heart around this reality. I have a unity as powerful as that bond between father and son, between myself and other Christians who are adopted by God. First of all, recognize. Let that settle deep in your heart. Consider it. Think about it. And mull over it frequently. 
Secondly, if we are eager to pursue a, 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 a unity in the bond of, of, of the spirit of peace in our congregation, here's what we need to do. Secondly, is then repent. Repent. Confess to the Lord where we recognize, where we have, we have acted in such a way that is beneath this call. And that'll be every day. That'll be every year. It'll be every church, no, how, no matter how holy. And yet there are grades. Okay? Yes, we, we will never do it perfectly, but... But where can you notice in your own life the, the speech you've tolerated in your own family and marriage, the, 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 the ways of thinking about other people, maybe races, maybe, maybe people groups, maybe people of different wealth, higher than you or lower than you, or, or whatever it be, you don't like the singles, or the singles don't like the married, or the kids don't like the oldies, or the oldies don't like the kids, however it be, however it be, think about how you have allowed the people of God in the local church to be anything other than a joy to you. Repent of those. Confess to the Lord. Pray for a mindset that would change, a, a changing of your thinking as repentance truly is. Recognize the reality of this unity. Repent of sin against this glorious unity. And thirdly, reconcile. Reconcile one to another where there has been a breakdown. Now, I want to make this condition. It doesn't always mean you go up to somebody and tell them every disunifying thought that you've had about them. Okay? The solution here is not that we all go and read each other our diaries, our hate diaries towards one another. Not necessarily the solution. Not every sin, if it was committed internally, not every sin needs to be confessed to the person. Okay? Please, don't do that. I've seen, I've had it done to me. It's not always pleasant. Not every sin needs to be confessed openly. Not, not every sin needs to be addressed openly, but where there has been open sin, Sin in conversation or in conduct or in mistreatment or behavior, where that has been tolerated in your own responsibility, then reconcile. Go to the person and, and ask forgiveness. Every one of you, be keen and eager to show forgiveness. Look forward to an apology so that you can extend it and lavish it upon them as Christ has lavished forgiveness upon us for God. Seek a reconciliation, a forgiveness. Uh, ask for the forgiveness. Uh, work one another again to be unified. This is, this, is not, this is not the kind of unity that comes because your church leaders sign a joint statement with some other denomination and now we're all in unity. That's fake. It does nothing. The real power of the church's unity is where we recognize what Paul has said, where we repent of our own misconduct, where we reconcile one to another in joy, embracing this reality. And of course, this doesn't apply to everybody. There are people in our midst to whom the unity of verses 4 to 6, the unity in Christ with other Christians does not apply to you and damned be you if you think it does. Because you're blaspheming God by thinking you can taste of the blessings while rejecting Christ and sinning against his law. And it is out of the, the love of his heart that Paul lived to plead with sinners. Don't pretend you are right with God. Don't pretend you have a portion of the inheritance of the eternal blessing with the saints if you have not bent the knee to the Lord Jesus. And I say the same to you. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20, that in Ephesus he would go about preaching repentance to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I beseech you right now, I call on you, I pray that you would do this, that you would consider your own sin as damning. You would recognize your sin as condemning you before a holy God, worthy of nothing but an eternal damnation in hell. Recognize that and know for certain that Jesus Christ came out of love for you. 
Jesus Christ came in his mercy, humility, his meekness. And in that, that meekness, I beseech you to recognize his love. It was not earned. It was not deserved. You were not worthy of it, and yet he gave it. And he bled on the cross of Calvary. He died there, giving his life as a payment for your sin. You didn't deserve it. You deserved the opposite. He loved you. He gave himself. Sin can be forgiven when you do nothing more than trust, rely, lean, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your savior, that he can wash you, that he can make you a child of God. Do that, and then you have unity with the saints. Then you have unity by the Spirit. Then you have a hope to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as judge, but as savior. Let's pray. Father God, we celebrate, we praise, we thank you, we glorify you, we extol you because it is good news that there is not types or classes of Christians in the church. There is merely saved sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you that Paul wrote in such daring and such, such controversial manners to tell us that the unthinkable is true. The mysterious has been made known. God really has joined himself to human flesh to redeem a lost people that deserved hell so that he might create in himself a new humanity, the church, all those who believe in him, a kingdom to God and priests forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we, we thank you that this is the reality. And we ask, Lord God, we ask that you would open our minds to realize and recognize this reality, that, that we will live beneath a manner worthy of the calling if we do not understand the fullness of the calling. Would you, would you increase? Would you expand? Would you, would you continually stretch our understanding of the glory of what you've done in the gospel of Jesus so that we would be able to live in such a way that is honorable to that, that is reflective of that, that is worthy of that calling? Father God, I pray that there are, there are those in our midst who are, who are young and have never before been challenged to believe in Jesus, who have been born into a Christian home and who have, who have not, not challenged their own thinking as to whether they truly be born again. Or there are those who have been, been brought by friends or family members or there are those who have just wandered in tonight or those who have been churchgoers much of their life or, or those who have never been to church before. Lord God, in our midst and only you know who, there are souls that are still this moment unjoined to Christ, separated from our Savior, and therefore they are in a line waiting to be judged by you with all of your wrath and judgment. Lord, we pray that in your mercy, in your sovereignty, and in your power, you would transfer them from that line awaiting judgment to that line awaiting the hope, that you would give to them a faith in place of their obstinance, that you would give to them a repentance in place of their love of sin, and that you would give to them a, a brotherhood and a unity in our, in our midst that we are all together saved and adopted through the work of Jesus Christ instead of being those who are going to be condemned. Father God, would you save in our midst tonight? Would you encourage, would you grow, and would you bless each one of us as we sit under the powerful words of Paul in this book to the Ephesians? And we pray this in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. 
We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.